Last several months, we've kind of been working through just paragraph by paragraph our uh, Confession of Faith, the London Confession of Faith, and how it takes into account the drafters did in the in putting this confession together, the the whole council of God's Word as it relates to the particular themes that the statement of faith covers. And this morning, I'm just quickly going to read to you paragraph 5 of chapter 8, which relates to Christ as our mediator. So paragraph 5 says this, The Lord Jesus, by His perfect obedience and sacrifice of Himself, which He, through the eternal Spirit, once offered up unto God, hath fully satisfied the justice of God and procured reconciliation and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father have given unto him. So that is paragraph 5 of chapter 8 of our Confession of Faith. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. We're going to finish out chapter 5 this morning. And if you've been following along with us, you know, you know chapter 5 is, is what some uh, theologians have, have deemed as, as the St. Jude chapter, the uh, St. Jude, the, the patron saint of hopeless causes, if you will. And, and we see three hopeless causes in, in chapter 5, right? We have looked over these last couple of weeks of the man possessed by the, the legion, and this morning we are going to look at a 12-year-old girl who um, died, and we are going to look at a woman who for 12 years suffered with a hemorrhage. And so allow me, starting with verse 21 of Mark chapter 5, I'm going to read all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 43, then I'll pray And then we'll work through this text together. And so John Mark, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, he penned these words. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, He fell at his feet, and he begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she'll live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. Verse 25. Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for twelve years, and had suffered many things from many physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and she touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. Immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in a crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, You see the multitude thronging you when you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him 
the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Verse 35, while he was still speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he said to the ruler of the synagogue, right, to Jairus, do not be afraid, only believe. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. Then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. And when he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child's not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi, which is translated little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked for she was 12 years of age and they were overcome with great amazement. But he, Jesus, commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given to her to eat. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for this time that we have in your word. And God, I ask that you would help us to understand it by your spirit, Lord, that you would use it to build us up in Christ. And we give you all praise, honor, and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Like I did a couple of weeks ago, I want to talk through this historical account and, and hopefully bring some things into greater focus. And, and then toward the end of my sermon this morning, I'm going to highlight just a few takeaways from our text. But as I said, this chapter is known as uh, by many to be the St. Jude chapter, the chapter of hopeless causes. And again, in, in our text, we've got this, this 12-year-old girl who has died, and then we have this woman who has suffered with a hemorrhage for 12 years. And according to our text, this leader, this father of this little girl who had died, his name was Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue, one of the rulers of the synagogue. So he was, he was a leader, okay? He was an important religious figure, and he was a, a, a visible figure, Right? In contrast to both his daughter and to the woman with the flow of blood, he's named while they remain unnamed, even in the other gospel accounts, both Matthew and Luke. Okay? And, and he's perhaps one of the few religious leaders that we see that mentioned in the gospels to, to, to come to faith in Christ or to approach Christ in, in this manner. Now, Based on where we see this happen in Mark, you would think that Jairus immediately approached Jesus when, when Christ and his disciples arrived back on the shore from, from dealing with the legion, and, 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 be, and they were greeted by this, this, this multitude. But Matthew uh, records this exchange happening while Christ is engaging the disciples of John the Baptist on this issue of fasting, which we saw back in Mark chapter 2. And, and, and what may seem like differences here in timelines have more to do with the purpose of the individual gospel writers instead of actual differences 
in the timelines. For instance, Matthew writes for the Jew, and, and, and he carefully traces the genealogy of Jesus. He, he writes for the one that is familiar with the Old Testament scriptures, awaiting for the long-promised Messiah. Okay, that's Mark's approach. I mean, Matthew's approach. Mark, as we come to see, he, he writes for those largely that are a part of the Roman Empire. And as we've seen, his, his style is, is rather action-focused and immediate, uh, if you will, right? Mark's gospel doesn't even begin uh, with a genealogy of Christ. It doesn't begin with the incarnation or the birth of Christ in his humanity. Luke, he, he wrote for a man named Theophilus after examining eyewitness accounts as it related to the life and ministry of Jesus. And he arranged them in this orderly fashion so that Theophilus could have certainty, confidence regarding the testimony about Christ, the Christian faith. And then John, who's, who's quite selective... Right, what he include, and in, in, he's selective in what he includes. He begins his gospel by stating that Jesus is the eternal God, the Word made what flesh, the Word made flesh. So as we work through Mark, and as hopefully you compare it with the other gospel accounts, it's important to keep in mind, you know, some some of these differences, and and to note the purpose of the gospel writers. But we see Jairus. Right, this religious figure, and he comes and he falls down at the feet of Jesus. Right, an expression that by now we're familiar with, just based on these last couple of weeks, this little bit of time that we've spent in the Gospel of Mark, and and this falling down, it would have been a very uh, undignified thing for a man to do of Jairus's stature, and in his coming. To the feet of Jesus, he then goes on to beg Jesus, right? To, we see him, him begging for his daughter to be healed, right? So, so Jesus follows on his own timetable. He, he follows Jairus on, on his way to, to, to Jairus' home, and, and this great multitude comes along, follows after Jesus as they, they make their way to the man's house, right? And, and on the way... There is what our text calls a certain woman, right? A certain woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years. And, and according to uh, Levitical law, and again, we've discussed this a, a little bit already in, in, as we've looked at Mark 5, but according to Levitical law, right, this, this woman would have been deemed unclean, right? In, in addition to this, it seems that this woman was taken advantage of by the medical community. Right? She, according to Mark, suffered many things from many physicians. And she gave them all of her money in order to find a cure. Right? So, so she had not only been hemorrhaging for some time, but physicians made it worse and they took all of her money. Right? She was now destitute. Right? She was a sick, unclean poor beggar, right? With no way to purchase hope, with no way to purchase salvation. And, and she perhaps sees all of this commotion, this, this multitude. And from this multitude, maybe she even heard about Jesus. And in this bold act of, of desperation, she makes her way to him. 
but secretly, and we'll talk more about why that is in a moment. She makes her way to him secretly. She gets to him, right? She, she sneaks up on him, and she thinks to herself, if I could just touch his clothes, right? If I could just touch his clothes, not even his person, but his clothes, I'll be made well, right? How, how desperate do you have to be to come up with that, right? But that's her plan, right? What, what, what seems like a, a, a last resort, a last-ditch effort, perhaps. But she touches the clothes of Christ. She does so in faith, and she's healed immediately. And our text says that Jesus, quote, knew in himself right, that, that power had gone out of him, right? Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus, in his deity gets depleted. It's not what the the text is saying. We know that that's not the case, right? He's the eternal God, and he doesn't possess power as something outside of himself. In his deity, he is power, or rather, you know, the theological word for this is omnipotent, all-powerful. But Jesus, he knows in himself that someone touched him with the type of intention that the woman had, right? She touched Jesus's clothes in faith, right? Other, other people were touching him, right? Or brushing up against him, right? The, the response that we saw a moment ago when I read the text in its entirety, the response of the disciples kind of indicates that they were being brushed up against a, a whole lot, but she touches the clothes of Christ in desperation, right? She touched his clothes for deliverance. She touched his clothes for salvation, and she got it. She, she got it. And Jesus, giving her an opportunity to make herself known, he asks a question that he already knows the answer to, right? He says, who touched my clothes? Who touched my clothes? The, the woman who we know is now healed, she, she timidly in a frightened way, she, she makes herself known. And, and just as Jairus fell down before Jesus, so we see this woman also fall down before Jesus and confess, right? She, again, according to our text, she tells him the whole truth. She holds nothing back from her Savior. She tells him everything. We see in Mark 5, right, the legion fell down. You know, initially, for other reasons, right? we're seeing the power of Christ in this. The legion f- falls down at the feet of Christ. We see Jairus fall down at the feet of Christ. We see this woman with the hemorrhage fall down at the feet of Christ. And as the woman is at his feet, he looks at her. Christ looks at her, and he calls her daughter. Daughter. I can't even imagine how pleasant those words were to hear for this woman. Right? Sometimes that term is used to connect women to their professing religion. Right? You see that phrase, daughters of the Philistines, 2 Samuel one twenty, or daughters of Zion, used in Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16. But here Jesus calls this woman daughter. Right? He, he connects her to himself. Your faith has made you well. Be healed of your affliction. Go in peace. Now, 
Just as Jesus does this, right, some people come from Jairus' home and confirm that the, the, the girl had, was in fact dead, right, that she had died at some point, right? And they not only they let Jairus know this, but they're perhaps coming to announce this news so as not to waste Jesus' time, right? They say, why trouble the teacher any further? But Jesus looks at, at, at Jairus after the guys brought this news, and he says to him, don't be afraid, right? only believe, right? in trust, in, in trust. Now, in case there was any debate around whether this girl was actually dead, by the time Jesus and Jairus arrived, the, the morning is well underway, isn't it? Right? It took them some time to get there. Matthew records there being flute players, if you were to read the account in Matthew. So, She's been dead, and, and the typical ceremonial things had commenced. But Jesus, right, coming in his own time, he tells them to stop mourning, and he says that the child is only sleeping. In other words, he's going to resurrect her, and it's going to be as if she were only napping. Now, this is met with the opposite of what he told Jairus to demonstrate, which is faith, Right? It's met with scoffing. It's met with ridicule. It's met with unbelief. Jesus told Jairus, he told him to believe, not because Jairus' belief was what was going to cause this miracle, though. Right? Jesus alone is the only one that holds power over the grave. Jesus was, was telling Jairus to trust him, to put his faith in him, right? and to see with, with eyes of faith what he was doing the Lord was doing, right? That's exactly what the woman with the hemorrhage was doing, though she didn't understand much, right? She was putting faith in Christ. She was putting faith in Jesus. Now, why wait until the girl dies before coming? We, we get some insight into what the Lord is doing through a death and resurrection in the Gospel of John when Jesus resurrects his friend Lazarus temporarily from, from, from the grave. Right? John chapter 11, verse 4, Jesus says, "...the sickness," again, speaking of Lazarus, "...is not unto death, but for the glory of God, the Son of God may be glorified through it." Right? A, a tremendous reminder for us that the glory of our triune God and our good is wrapped up together. Right? That, that's by divine design. Right, so Jesus goes into the home, and after dismissing the scoffers and the mourners and the multitude, he takes Jairus and his wife and Peter and James and John, right, those with eyes to see, perhaps. Right? This miracle isn't performed for the proud. It's not performed for the skeptic, but for those in, uh, who in humility trust Jesus those who in humility trust Jesus. And, and what do we see in Scripture? Right? What do we see in this historical account? Jesus, he, he resurrects this girl. Right? He calls to her, and she rises. She obeys the voice of her Savior. And if there's any question about her actually physically rising, the first thing that happens is that she eats. And Jesus instructs the people that are present there not to, not to say anything. Right? It's like Jesus is refusing to give proof to the mockers who were on the outside, right? Now, there, there is a lot here we could, we could spend several Sundays working through. And, and some of you, as I, 
as I preach through this, perhaps you, you know, see some things or may emphasize some things that I don't, right? Some of the beauty of just the living and active Word of God, and I'd love to hear that because it encourages me. But I want to spend some time on a few things this morning from our text that have, have just uh, washed over me over these last couple of weeks that have kind of gotten into my, my bones as I've reflected on, on on the scripture here. And if you're taking notes, this is the first thing. You can kids, you can jot this down alongside of your parents. The first is this. You must shed all your self-importance to come to Jesus. You must shed all your self-importance to come to Jesus. Jairus, the the this well-respected man in the synagogue, he he comes to Christ begging right? Falling down before Jesus. Again, similar language is used both for the, the demon-possessed man, right? Although coming for, diff- for different motives there. But the woman with the hemorrhage and, the, and Jairus, they come with nothing, right? They're, and I think having the woman with the hemorrhage here and this important figure like Jairus it it demonstrates to us that there, there's there's no distinction, right? And and how a man in a well respected class of society and how people in lower parts of society come to Jesus, right? And isn't that the nature of the gospel? Right? Paul says in Galatians chapter three verses twenty eight to twenty nine, quote: "There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female." For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ's, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. I mean, not just a difference from an ethnic standpoint, but even here in Mark chapter 5, just two different classes of people that are both coming and begging at the feet of their Savior. And we as people created in God's image, we don't come to Christ on our own terms, right? We don't come to Christ clinging to our social status or our possessions. We don't come to Christ dignified, hanging on to our pride or any illusions that we have of being important or worthy or good, right? We, we have to rid ourselves of, of anything that we may find in ourselves to brag about, to boast about, and come to Christ with the heart posture of a beggar. Proverbs 3, 34, Surely he scorns the scornful, but he gives grace to the what? To the humble. We saw what Christ did to the mockers in our text this morning, right? He, He put them out, right? In contrast, God gives grace to the humble, that word humble, it means in, to, in a wretched state and to, to, to know that you're in that state. It carries it with it this idea of being um, hunched over, right? It means to bend. It's the opposite of standing up proud with your chest puffed out, right? Again, Jesus, he, he just missed the mockers at the end of this historical account resurrecting this 12-year-old girl, right? He, he, he dismissed those who thought they knew what was going on, those who thought that they saw things straight, and instead, he brought the humble, right? Jairus, his wife, Peter, James, John, he brought them closer to himself to, to behold, although dimly, 
at the glory of God and the resurrection of this girl. So Christians are not people that have things together. Right? Christians are those who, by God's grace, see that their only hope in life and death is Christ alone. So we have to forsake our self-importance and those things in our lives that, that, that puff us up. Secondly, you can't purchase deliverance. You can't purchase deliverance. They look to the woman with the hemorrhage. She, she had nothing. Right? She suffered something unspeakable for 12 years, right? People took advantage of her suffering, including doctors. She had no money. She had no place that, that she could go. And in that desperation, she, she turned to Jesus, who, who, who we know is the author and sustainer of life. But she came to him with nothing but her sickness. Now, if we take this and we were to view this through the lens of our own spiritual condition, can't we, can't we see the parallel? All right, we can't purchase salvation. Right? We, we're spiritually bankrupt. We, we can't heal ourselves. There's no man-made remedy for the ailment that is our sin. Right? And it's a disease that has thoroughly corrupted us. Right? Theologians call this... Um, call our state apart from Christ Jesus one of being totally depraved, meaning by God's grace we're not as bad as we can be, but we are thoroughly sinful and unable to change ourselves. We need outside intervention. Paul, the Apostle Paul, quoting the psalmist, says it in this very way in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18. It says, as it's written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside and have together become unprofitable. There's no one who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb with their tongues. They have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and destruction and misery are in their ways, and their way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And you hear the progression of that text, right? No one seeks, all have turned aside, no one does good, and it moves from the throat to the tongue to the lips to the mouth to the feet to the eyes. Right? If this is our condition apart from Jesus, we certainly can do nothing to purchase our deliverance, right? We're we're, we are as spiritually destitute as the woman with the hemorrhage was physically and financially. Right? We can't remedy our situation. Our good deeds are like polluted garments before our holy God. Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, right? Things apart from outside intervention are dire. So we have to come to Jesus. And as we do, we must remember that we come only with our misery. We come only with our sin. It's the second thing. The third thing is that Jesus is the only one that makes us clean. He's the only one that makes us clean, right? Continue to think for a moment with me just about the state of the woman with the hemorrhage. As I mentioned earlier, right, she would have been deemed unclean, un 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 untouchable according to Levitical law. 
Peter Chrysologus, he's a, a bishop around the mid-400s, known as, as, as the, the doctor of the homilies. He said this about our passage, and this is a, a, somewhat of a lengthy quote, but helpful for us as, as we contemplate this passage of Scripture together. He says this, No seas were ever so troubled by the ebb and flow of the tide as the mind of this woman pulled to and fro by the sway of her thoughts. After all the hopeless strivings of physicians, after all her outlay on useless remedies, after all the usual but useless treatments, when skill and experience had so long failed, all her substance was gone. This was not by chance, but but divinely ordered that she might be healed solely through faith and humility, whom human knowledge had failed through so many years. At a little distance apart from him stood this woman, whom nature had filled with modesty, whom the law had declared unclean, saying of her, she shall be unclean and shall touch no holy thing. She fears to touch lest she incur the anger of the religious leaders or the condemnation of the law. For fear of being talked about, she dares not speak lest she embarrass those about her, lest she offend their ears. Through many years, her body has been an arena of suffering. Every day, unceasing pain, she can endure no more. The Lord's passing by so quickly. The time is short to think about what she must do, aware that healing is not given to the silent nor to the one who hides her pain. In the midst of her conflicting thoughts, she sees away her sole way of salvation. She would secure her healing by stealth, take in silence what she dares not ask for, guarding her respect and modesty. She who feels unworthy in body draws near in heart, to the physician, in faith, she touches God. And with her hand, she touches his garment, knowing that both healing and forgiveness may be bestowed. And she knew that this gain that she stalked by self would come no loss to him from whom she took it. In an instant, faith cures where human skill had failed through 12 years. I love the way that that's summed up, right? And, and it does help explain the, the stealthiness and perhaps capture the intensity of this moment a bit better for us, right? This unclean woman who is banished to this life of isolation, of being an outcast, of not being touched or hugged or comforted, right? she enters into this crowd and she reaches out in faith, to touch Jesus. The unclean touches the clean. And, and get this, right? The unclean is made clean, and the uncleanliness does not spread to Jesus, right? It stops at Jesus. It's put away. It's dealt with. The woman's healed. She's reconciled to her people, no longer an outcast, but, but called daughter by Jesus, him identifying her with Himself. And I love that phrase that Mark records for us, that she, quote, told him, speaking of Jesus, the whole truth after he had discovered her. Right? The woman made well. She's compelled by Christ to walk in the light and to be honest. She, she tells him everything. This is, certainly has some application for us as it relates to confession, right? knowing that in Christ... Right? We're made clean, that we're pardoned, not because of our works, but because of Christ alone. Right? That should compel 
confession as we confess our sins, right? We should mourn over them and hate them, but, but not despair. We, we shouldn't despair because Jesus has set things right. He's made things right. Jesus alone makes us clean. And the final thing, quickly this morning, a better resurrection is coming. A better resurrection is coming. Right? This connects well, I think, to our observation last week on how, how one day the, the gates of hell will be shut up forever. Right? But we see that Jesus resurrects this 12-year-old girl, but he doesn't do so eternally, right? the same way that Lazarus did not have an eternal resurrection. Right? This girl would face that enemy called death once more. She would face that enemy. Right? If it were possible, we could go find her tomb somewhere. And one day, you and I are going to face that enemy, death. Right? This enemy that was brought into the world through the disobedience of the first Adam. But this temporary resurrection that we see in this girl, or we see with someone like Lazarus, it does point us to a better resurrection. It points us to our coming resurrection. Right? It's, it's a better resurrection because it's a resurrection that overcomes death definitively. It overcomes death definitively. Right? It's both a bodily and an eternal resurrection. And why is this? Right? It's because, according to Scripture, Jesus is the first fruits from the dead. Quote, but now Christ is risen from the dead, right? Christ's bodily and eternally resurrected. Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, right? We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, right? Christ is the first to bodily and eternally resurrect from the dead. And, and his, his people, when he did that, his people, his elect from every tribe and every tongue and every nation were spiritually raised with him. But there's this coming day, right, when those who have died will be bodily resurrected, resurrected and glorified, right? And on that day, Christ will speak and we will hear as the 12-year-old girl did, arise, arise, right? And we will, along with her and along with Lazarus, we'll obey, right? And, and we'll live forever in the glory of our Savior, and we'll worship Him without any hindrances of our sin, without any hindrances of sickness, with death finally be putting, being put away. English poet George Herbert in the 1600s, he wrote of that glorious day. He said, Rise, heart, your Lord is risen. Sing His praise without delays, who takes you by the hand that you likewise with Him may rise that at his death smoldered you to dust, his life may make you gold and much more just. And we go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for our time together in your word. God, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that his death is sufficient. He paid the price for our sin, God, that he was resurrected for our justification, Lord, that we are made right with you. And Lord, we look forward to that day where we, where we will rise as our Savior rose. And we give you all praise, all honor, all glory. In Jesus' name, amen.